Welcome to the Ghibli Minute. Ghibli Minute. I'm Richard Dunham. I'm Chieko Dunham. I'm Andrew Dorowski. Thank you, Andrew. You're our yeah, first guest our first for guest. the Ghibli Whoa. Minute. I'm excited for it. This is a podcast where we analyze Ghibli movies one minute at a time. Minute by minute. We are on Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind. Mm-hmm. Uh, minute six. Minute six. Minute six begins with... Well, before we jump into minute six, you want to kind of uh, give a little intro of yourself, uh, Andrew? Maybe sure. Maybe plug something? Yeah. <laughs> I I host with my wife the Disney Animation Minute Essentials podcast, which is just like this one, except Disney animated films instead of Studio Ghibli. Awesome. What uh, what movie are you guys on now? On that right now, we are still recording, and by this t- by the time this is released, hopefully we are releasing minutes from The Little Mermaid. We already finished Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, so we're on our second film. And then after Little Mermaid, we will be moving on to 101 Dalmatians. We're kind of bouncing around the eras right. of Disney animation so that we didn't have to do it all the way through chronologically. Um, yeah. th- this way, we are guaranteed to never be more than one film away from something we're really excited about. That's a good idea. <laughs> That's a good idea, yeah. Okay, so minute six opens with uh, the girl that we have uh, been introduced to in previous minutes looking around the forest mm-hmm. in the wake of the uh, Ohm's tracks, yeah. uh, we can guess. And it ends with her saying something about raw materials for tools. Yeah, right. So uh, this, uh, you get kind of a... You get a pause. You get time to look around. Yeah. And and look at the environment. I think we were mentioning before that there's like little, very simple but very effective kind of animations in the corner, uh, the corners of the screen that kind of give you a, a good sense that this environment is alive. And I think throughout these these couple minutes, you have like just kind of insects, flying insects, kind of floating by. But yeah, it's a nice. You know, I think uh, it's something that I've seen. I think Scott McCloud, who's a who's a, a great comic artist and a great kind of theory of the comic art, he oh, points right. this out uh, that you see in other like Japanese films like Yasujiro Ozu or something. A lot of the editing, instead of building a scene or building kind of a narrative, a lot of the editing kind of cuts that you see in Japanese movies are building a place. Yeah, I I was actually and you really see. I was here. thinking about mentioning that in in his book Understanding Comics, he has a a thorough discussion of the different types of transitions that you can have in comic panels from one panel to the next. And he emphasizes how in American comics, there's a a trend towards a very specific proportional breakdown of the different kinds of transitions. Like the percent of each transition is pretty consistent for American comics. And it's very different from the Japanese style manga. And he suspects that it carries over into anime and, and film and i think he's right and this is a good example of it where you get yeah. A, yeah. a long series of shots that are establishing the environment he in in his book he you know demonstrates it by showing that in a manga there might be an image of the sun and then the grass with someone's hand sitting on the grass and then kind of a wide shot showing you know that this person is sitting outside and you've used three images to do it when in an american comic they might only use one they don't kind of spend that time on it and i think this is a a film version of what he was talking about there. Yeah, yeah. I see that so many times, like as I'm reading my own manga or like I'm watching an anime in my free time. It's just yeah. a common thing. I think it's one of the things that has made some manga adapted into anime and then brought to American audiences. It's one of the things that's harder to translate. The pacing 
doesn't match um, mm-hmm. what Americans expect out of a television series or, or movie in many cases. And so you get these commentaries about how in an anime show, you're not getting as much content as you expect out of a out of a 30 minute episode because you have this kind of luxurious establishing sequence where you have yeah. you know a yeah. big pan across a wide landscape with the characters in the distance and then you're a little bit closer and then a little bit closer and that's just a different style and it i think i think there is something we said for how it doesn't translate great into animation or or film from a manga but i think it's also still a it, it's just another style of storytelling yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Like in in uh, it's something uh, you see in uh, Ozu films, like Tokyo Story or any of those other movies. There's often like you know after a big sequence or a big scene, you'll at, before another scene begins, you'll get shots of laundry hanging on a wire. Or you get you yeah. know the closest train station or like a train going by. You just get these kind of kind of establishing the place or the environment. So I did really dig the. We talked a little bit about Joe Hisaishi. Yeah. And I do really dig the music here. You can really, it plays a big part, at least, right? especially in this minute. You know, it kind so of good. opens with this spooky, um, it's kind of at the same time spooky and funky, which is a weird thing to be, but mm-hmm. it's it, it, it's funny that it can it's, be both. It's definitely like nothing that I hear on a regular basis. Like it, it is a very yeah. unique and intentional kind of music and it creates this environment. Yeah, and, and behind the music, we hear a lot of animal cries, which I guess we can, there's nothing but insects here, so we can see the, the cries of insects, but they yeah. sound exactly like bird cries. <laughs> it's kind of pretty obvious that these are, somebody recorded a lot of bird, right. bird yeah. songs. <clears throat> and then you get the big sitar blast at the site of the uh, ohm. And then it goes silent, and we had a ch- we had a chance to see this in the theater mm-hmm. this past week, right? Which was awesome, That's and so it was I was one of the things that really impressed me seeing it in the theater is how much silence there was, especially at the beginning of this movie, and this you get a, several seconds of it in this minute, and it's it's something that it's maybe harder to appreciate, you know, seeing it on a home video or something, but in a theater when you're kind of wondering if everybody will will keep the silence with you right if you you know there's such the opportunity of people chattering or or rustling popcorn or something like that it's really the fact that there's absolutely no sound coming from the the movie is is uh makes made a big impression Mm -hmm. and she says wow this is the first time i've seen a complete ohm shell which makes me wonder has she seen like parts of an ohm shell like at other times yeah, probably. I think she would have seen at least something if it if it is a thing that they're harvesting for materials in her village. She would have seen at least chunks. Right, yeah. And possibly she's been part of a small party that's retrieving materials from one that's already been roughly disassembled. So she might have seen chunks, but she's je- definitely in awe of this one. Yeah. So you think this is so you think they send out parties like uh, scavenging or gathering parties into the forest regularly. That's the sense that I get from what she's doing. I don't think she's the first person to have, you know, uh, recovered material like this. It, at least that's the sense I get from her activities. She seems to be doing something that's relatively routine. And she just happens to, happens to be doing it alone today. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So you can see, so she strikes the shell... And you get Chieko's favorite line. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. And you can kind of see her body shake a little bit. Like her whole body shakes yeah. like a tuning fork. 
mm-hmm. along with the uh, the sword. It, it is a wonderful sound that it makes when she smacks the sword against the shell. <laughs> yeah. And then so she's plugging, and then she immediately moves to thrust her sword at it, and she says, "Ooh, the ceramic sword is chipped." Which at the first time I heard it was kind of like this sounds a little bit like a sci-fi. Let me explain the world, and but. When I think about it more, it's a more natural thing to say, yeah. oh, even my ceramic, like, maybe that's something I was like, oh, geez, even the stainless steel blade that I have is, right? Yeah, yeah. It. Right, she yeah. is kind of talking to herself a little bit much, but it's kind of necessary for us as viewers to, to get a glimpse into this world. Yeah, yeah. It, I, I can't imagine her, like, having a little sidekick that she needs to be telling all of this to. So talking to herself fills that gap. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's it's necessary. So, I, you know, I was going to give it a pass anyway. But, you know, it's, <laughs> even so, I think yeah. it's it, it's something that I might even say if I, <laughs> if, you know, wow, even my Toyota can't handle this <laughs> or something, you know. Yeah. It's one thing that's surprising to me in this moment is how quickly she'll transition from just enjoying that sound and, and being in awe of this shell and, and all of that stuff. She switches like very quickly and suddenly into aggression and attacking yeah. the shell mm-hmm. and it's kind of striking uh how easily and quickly she moves from you know this serene enjoyment of this experience to attack strike and and violence like it's a yeah. violent maneuver the way she does it yeah yeah i, I that that's something that struck me as well yeah i it kind of like changed the pace for me i was like oh okay we're doing this now like it's a quick transition yeah and she says the subtitles say here the villagers will be pleased but what she actually says is the people of the valley. I know that's probably not a big deal. Yeah. It's just a difference. I decided I would note. Everything is still blue. It's almost almost monochrome. And I was thinking that may be a representation of the just the fact that it's dim in the forest. Oh, and yeah. You get like a low level of light. Right. I think that's definitely a way that Studio Ghibli demonstrates darkness i mean there's other films where you see a character will turn off a lamp or something and it goes completely dark and then it fades in with a slightly different color scheme as as sort of the interpretation of your eyes adjusting like they do the eyes adjusting for the audience and so i'd say in this case they're saying this is dim but we don't want to make it dark and hard to see so they just kind of cover everything in a shade of blue yeah Mm -hmm. the other thing i noted is that uh, her mask moves when she speaks. Yeah, or like the airbags. Yeah, the airbags like or whatever they are at the sides of the mask kind of move, uh, which is kind of a total animation thing. Yeah. But it works. It works. It, it tells works. us that uh, when she's speaking. Yeah. Because uh, you kind of need that in animation. You need kind of a little bit more cues about what people are doing. Without yeah. that, this whole sequence would probably more seem like voiceover, like she's she's just talking in her, in yeah. her head. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if, if yeah. she's ever really supposed to be doing that or if she is or or if this is the kind of movie that doesn't have any voiceover or if it is the kind of movie that that does have voiceover. I, yeah, are there any yeah, moments we that got... seem like, like voiceover throughout this or does it seem like she's usually well, talking? Well, we got at the beginning of the movie, we had like a, you know, explanatory text on screen, mm-hmm. like telling us kind of like the history of, uh, you know, the the seven days of fire and so forth. So I feel like that would be. If it was going to do a voiceover, it would have done it there. That would have been a good time yeah. to do the voiceover. Definitely, definitely. That's all I have. That's all I have. So I've always been kind of curious: what mm-hmm. is this shell made of, and like what what is the material? And the villagers are going to be pleased. What are they going to do with it? Yeah, that's what I've been wondering, and I 
I'm not sure. I'd assume maybe with like the eyes. It's kind of jumping ahead a little, but like with the eyes, maybe they'd like make a window out of it. Like it's kind of like a a clear dome that you can see through, like kind of like a window. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But that's like the only thing I can really think of. Because it's a really hard shell, yeah. so I don't know what like how they process it or even what exactly it is. I've always kind of. I think since the first time I watched it, the sense I sort of got was since she commented on her sword being ceramic, that maybe the shell is some type of ceramic that they can use to to make things like her sword. But I don't know if there's Mm. anything in the film that actually supports that. Yeah, I mean, is it ceramic or is it even harder than ceramic? So, I mean, if it's what insect shells in our world are made of, like, keratin? Yeah, chitin. Yes, thank you. Is that... I don't know how... I don't think it's harder than ceramic. Like, it's usually... Like, (laughs) bugs are pretty squishy. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. At least the ones that... Yeah, the ones at the scale in our world. I mean, I I know that some of them do have relatively tough surfaces. And and if if these bugs are maybe a little closer to things like crustaceans than than insects, we could be getting to a really, really tough shell at that point. Yeah, we can... So, maybe jumping ahead, we'll get, like, at the next minute, uh, there's a little bit more discussion, and I have uh, I have some notes on the, on the manga, so I'll have a little bit more to say on this Whoa. in the next. Minute. Okay, but yeah, so uh, what, I guess so I want to take a a quick minute to talk about how did you come to Ghibli films, or when did you? I I guess Ghibli films in general, and then we can talk about when you saw this this particular movie for the um, first time. Sometime around when Spirited Away was basically introduced to. American popular audiences. Um, I think it was John Lasseter uh, helped with that transition and did like the introduction for it. Is that right? Yeah. I'm sure. Um, <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. I don't know. Have you been seeing any? We've been going to like Fathom Events has been doing this like Ghibli movie f- festival and theaters yeah. uh, this summer. I don't know if you've caught any of those, but there's, uh, yeah, I mean, we've had to sit through John <laughs> <Okay>. Lasseter's <laughs> introductions. Yeah. Helped with kind of the, the, distribution of Ghibli films in, into America. And I think it started with, with yeah. Spirited yeah. Away. And I was probably, I don't, I don't even know, like maybe 10, 11, maybe 13 years old when that happened. And one of my older brothers brought Spirited Away to to my family and, and we watched it. So that was before they really had started distributing everything. Um, it started with Spirited Away for me. And uh-huh. I, I it, it was, of course, amazing. An amazing film. Like, yeah, yeah I can't. Yeah. I can't. Really good you know, say that enough that it was amazing. And I was already kind of into anime and manga at that time. I I was you know growing up and enjoying those things. So so seeing this as a film or see, seeing Spirited Away as a film uh, just kind of filled in with that interest that I already had. And and then as new films were released in America, I, I was just getting into. I was watching Castle in the Sky and I was watching. Princess Mononoke and, and all of those things and just getting involved in this environment that Studio Ghibli creates with their films and I watched them a lot and this was just one on the list. Nausicaa was just an, another Studio Ghibli film. It's like, well, of course I'm going to watch it. <laughs> so when, yeah. it, right. when it got yeah. its distribution um, or, or when my brother bought a copy, I watched it. I feel like this one I never had quite as strong a connection to as many of the others. Yeah. I, I'm still not sure if I get it. Like, I'm not sure if I understand what this movie is about. And I know some of that is because there was sort of a few 
there's some some weird versions of it in English. Like the the way it was brought to English speaking audiences wasn't necessarily the same film that it actually is. Really? What do you, what do you uh, mean? My like understanding. The my understanding. Or? There was um, basically a a dub that was also re-edited and told kind of a different story. And then oh. it had. Was this like an early? I think dub a, like, like a very the, early the usual... one, like before the Disney okay. distribution okay. deals through Lasseter and everything. Like with the okay. With so your you didn't usual... get Shia LaBeouf. Uh, the, <laughs> the yeah, the version I watched did have the Shia LaBeouf uh, and Patrick okay. Stewart. Oh, okay. I think was in there, but I think there was uh, yeah. like an older one, which had the usual kind of like Robotech crew. Yeah, of, that, uh, English an older kind of thing because this was this was one of the earlier Studio Ghibli films, right? Yeah, eighty four. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so yeah. I think probably. I mean, it was the. I mean, there was. Uh, an attempt to bring it to American audiences, but they re-edited it and dubbed it, and and it like the story wasn't really the story. Huh. Um, mm. Yeah. And I wonder if like at some point I'd seen part of that, and it got mixed up in my head with what we actually have. And I've never watched it with subtitles. I I usually watched the Ghibli films dubbed. Um, okay. And so any changes that are that are perpetuated through that, I'm unfortunately a victim of <laughs> <laughs> right you know I, I don't get the pure uh you know the pure distribution of the film i get the americanized and who knows what they're changing kind of distribution so yeah and and that could be errors in translation it could be tweaks in the storytelling it could be a lot of things that this film just never quite clicked in my head and i never really knew what the story was and maybe i just wasn't paying enough attention when i watched it so it it doesn't hold as strong a connection to me uh, as some of the other yeah. studio ghibli films like princess mononoke i have a very strong connection to i watched that one a lot when i was a teenager uh but this one not as much yeah yeah that was the, the princess i think that was the my introduction to ghibli was princess mononoke for me this was this was about like 99 i think was when that that was what i remember as the first big splash because they had, uh, uh, what's that guy's name, Mister Slingblade? Uh, they had some. They had some big names. Um, mm-hmm. Billy Bob Thornton oh. was the uh, the priest, or kind of like the the emperor's agent yeah. in that one. And that was I remember I got the the DVD. That was like the big first big. Wa- that was when like when DVDs were first, the first wave of DVDs, like the Matrix. Everybody had like the Matrix and. Ghost in the Shell on yeah. DVD, and then this was one of the ones after the, after it came out in th- like the Princess Mononoke was one, and then I was I think I probably I can't remember where I saw I probably bought this one at a Japanese a Japanese bookstore here and watched this on DVD. Yeah, Aww. but this one I think this one is this is a lot more sci-fi. Yeah, this one's your favorite, right? It's up there. Yeah. It's up there. But this is a lot more sci-fi than than any of the others. I yeah, think. I'd say it's it's mm-hmm. a fairly fairly unusual uh for the settings of of most uh Ghibli yeah. films. And it's I mean, a lot of it is kind of creepy. Like the bugs are creepy. There's a lot of creepy crawly yeah. and just kind of it makes me uncomfortable to watch sequences, which is maybe one of the reasons I didn't rewatch it as much as many of the others. Yeah. Right. Um I didn't I didn't dig into it. I didn't you know, make the choice to to come to understand it as much. Yeah, mm-hmm. there's some very. I think Laputa has some yeah. some really striking kind of action, kind of destruction sequences. But yeah. this one, like at the end, is really. It's a lot. It's yeah, it's yeah, overwhelming. It's really extreme. Yeah. yeah, it's almost yeah. Which I thought I was in uh, my probably late twenties when I saw it. I thought it was awesome, <laughs> <laughs> so cool. Right. Yeah, but uh, okay, Chiaco, do you have anything um, else? 
Not really. Uh, I don't know. I just never really connected with this movie as much for like the same reasons as you did, Andrew. Because like I was a little kid and I didn't really understand like what was going on. I just thought mm-hmm. that like the bugs were cool, but then by the end I was kind of scared because it's it's a lot of destruction. Yeah, and it's a lot like of I think the, kind like, of political. Yeah, like, this one in has its own sense. This one has a pretty strong. We are trying to tell you a message. Like it is. You know, it is is definitely targeted at making you think about certain things a certain way. Yeah. And it almost feels manipulative to that end. Yeah. Um, In a way that a lot of the other ones are a little more low-key about the messages they're sending. Like, a lot of them are definitely still sending messages, but this one feels different uh, for for some reason. This one almost feels like it has the Gene Roddenberry message hammer (laughs) Mm -hmm. in hand, bidding over the head. and And the message... The uh, the whole ecology that we're supposed to take away or the, the lessons, the ecology that is teaching us this lesson doesn't wind up making sense to me uh, at the end of the day. Yeah. Like this, like the, 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 the way the forest is supposed to clean the earth uh, when I think, try to sit down and try to think it through, it doesn't. Yeah. It doesn't quite get track. It. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I think there's a variety of things that they improve on uh, from this point to other films, especially things like, the subtlety of storytelling, how to get a message across and things like that. I, I mean, this is one of the early Studio Ghibli films. You know, when you think of like the collection of Studio Ghibli canon, uh, this yeah. is an early one. And I think they definitely improve and they get better and they learn how to do things. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. So I see this as kind of like the sci-fi version of Princess Mononoke. Cause like that's, that's like nature versus man. Like all of, like most of, like some of his other Ghibli movies, but like this is like, because that was violent in itself, but this is a lot of like destruction. So it just yeah, like catastrophic this, destruction, catastrophic yeah. destruction uh, all throughout right. this film, and yeah. and like big explosions, large ships going down with lots of people on it. Like it 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 gets to you where you're like, I don't know how I'm supposed to feel about everything that's going on. Like yeah, is, like is, isn't this a lot of loss of life that I'm witnessing? Yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah, there's some strong. Yeah, there's a lot of strong parallels with uh, Princess Mononoke. Mm-hmm. I, I read something recently where he said that this this movie he made the heroine he made the the protagonist female because th- what I read it it made it seem like the main reason was that he wanted an interesting villain and that if he had a male protagonist he felt that the villain could not be complicated the villain then would have to be just kind of purely evil right and not have kind of a little bit more nuanced motives mm-hmm. which i thought was an interesting reason for picking a, a female protagonist yeah but it seems that seems to be something he solved <laughs> by the time of princess mononoke yeah yeah it, it's a balance that he was able to strike later on mm-hmm. but this introduces uh, uh, some of the themes like girl close to who's uh, in touch with nature the warrior woman who is not really her enemy <laughs> right yeah, that shows up uh, in Princess Mononoke as well as Princess Mononoke. So yeah, okay. Anything else on minute six? Uh, I'm I'm good. Not really. All right, we'll uh, we'll leave it there. Yeah, and we'll see you next time on Ghibli Minute. The Ghibli Minute.